Well, good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7, we're going to be reading from there in just a moment. While you're taking your Bibles and turning to that passage, uh, I want to extend the, the welcome that has already been given by, by Brother Ronnie in the announcements. We are so thankful for all of you who have chosen to be here with us this morning. For our members who have come and, and chosen to spend this time praising and worshiping God and encouraging and lifting up uh, one another as we, we look forward to the return of the Lord and, and look forward to him, his coming in glory. We also look forward to, to pressing one another on to that day, to encouraging one another to love and to good work. So I'm very thankful for each one of you that have chosen to be here, especially thankful for those who are visiting with us, um, that you have, have taken time out of your day when there are other things that you could have chosen to do to come and, and be here with us. And if there's anything that, that you hear this morning that you have a question about, that you would like to, to know more about, we would count it, uh, you as our friend if you would come and you would make that uh, known to us so that we could sit down together, study from God's Word, and find biblical answers for our questions. Uh, if Just in case you were, uh, didn't hear it uh, earlier, if you are visiting with us, we would be uh, greatly appreciative if you'd fill out a visitor card and just you can hand that to, to me or one of the other men here in the congregation so we could have a recollection of your time here with us. Having said those things, I want to get into Mark chapter 7, uh, and we're going to start reading in verse 14, but I wanted to note what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, 14, it's kind of a strange thing to talk about, talking about food and talking about things that we eat and what happens to them and what's going on with the things that he says there. Well, in understanding this, we have to have a little bit of context. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 sets that context, why Jesus is having this conversation with the multitude. Um, and what happens there is the, the, the Pharisees, uh, this, this religious group of the day, they believed in God. They, they believed that, that Israel was God's chosen people. They wanted to please God, but, but they had developed this attitude that Jesus is going to describe there in those first 13 verses, along with the scribes, the people who recorded the law and, and would have been kind of like the lawyers, the doctors of the law. They come to Jesus and they say, we see your disciples eating without unwashed hands. Why on earth do your disciples do that which we know we should not do? And Jesus' response to them is, well, what you're talking about is a tradition. You all, they should have known better than anyone that the, the law doesn't, doesn't dictate anything about how they, were, how they were to eat their food with washed or unwashed hands. It was a tradition of men. It was something that they had instituted into their, their religious uh, going uh, dealings. And so Jesus talks to him about the danger of that. And that's completely applicable to us today because like it or not, we function off of tradition. Tradition is a big part of things that go on in the church. This morning we, we had a, a announcements before service and then we had a prayer and then a couple songs or some, we, we observed the Lord's Supper. Many of those things are things that we're commanded to do, to sing and to pray and to give of our means, to remember the death of our Savior, but the order in which we did them. It's a very Americanized way of doing them. It is the tradition of the church here to do things in this manner. And so we can become guilty of the same things the Pharisees were guilty of by looking at traditions and raising them up above what God's commandments are. That's what was going on, and that's the context of this. And so now, after Jesus has this conversation with them about the dangers of tradition, he, he begins to, and shows how that can make their worship vain, 
and, and the commandments of God void, he begins to use this as an opportunity to teach them what truly can cause defilement, what truly can cause us to be viewed as sinful in the eyes of God. He does that by first talking to the multitude here in verses 14 through 16, and then privately. See, that's one of the great things about Mark's gospel is we have Jesus' public teachings, what he said when he was out with, with the multitude around him, and then they went separately, him and his disciples, and they said, hey, what you told us about, can you explain that a little bit more? And he went into more, a little bit more detail with his disciples. And so we have both his public and his private discussion on things that can truly uh, defile us. And what we find in this, uh, having this benefit, is that we learn the source of true defilement. And what we're going to find is it is what comes from within us. That truly is the source of the things that mark us as sinful in the eyes of God. And that's the first thing that he makes clear in these passages. It is not the external that defiles us. Notice what he says. We're just going to read the whole passage together. Mark chapter 7, 14 through 23. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. You know, Jesus speaking to this, to this crowd, maybe we begin to wonder, why on earth did they have a hard time with this? This doesn't seem to be that confusing of a, of a conversation, saying it's not the food that defiles you. But when we look back, we can understand that dietary restriction has been a big part in the past for the people of God. And we can begin to see maybe this is why they had a hard time. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 1, go all the way back to the beginning, to creation, you find that, one, we find restrictions, but we also find that very likely, early man, Adam and Eve, they were probably vegetarians. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, he says, God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seeds, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given them, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So from the very beginning, God says, look, look what I've given you. I have given you the crops of the ground. I have given you the fruit of the tree. And yet even in that, if we read on, he gives them a restriction saying there is a fruit of a tree that you cannot eat, the, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we, we understand that the, the violation of that, when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, brought sin into the world. And so there were restrictions in the past. It seems as if the restrictions here were that you are to eat the, the herb and the fruit. But in Genesis chapter 9, we see that change. 
In Genesis 9, verses 3 through 4, at the conclusion of the flood, when God speaking to Noah, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God, in Genesis chapter 9, he, he modifies the, his, his original statement of, of, I've given you herbs, I've given you fruit, so now I've given you everything. Every living thing on the face of the earth, Noah, is yours for food, saving it is dead. It does not have its life in it. It is not, uh, does not have its blood in it. And so he, he still, even in that, gives a, a bit of a restriction. But here's where maybe, here's where maybe the people of Jesus' day, and possibly people today as well, begin to get kind of a hiccup. Because God says very clearly here in Genesis 9, all of it is given to you for food. Not some of it, all of it. When we get over to Leviticus chapter 11, God gives some very strict guidelines. In Leviticus 11, speaking to the, to the, uh, the Israelites as he is creating for himself this people that will belong to him and he will be their God, he gives them some instruction on how they are to eat and what they are to eat. And we're not going to read the entire chapter, but we get a really good snapshot of this in the beginning, uh, several, several verses from the beginning of the chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The rock hyrax, or maybe you have the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, it is unclean unclean to you. God gives them very specific things. You cannot eat these things. And then in verse 8, he says, their flesh you shall not eat, their carcasses you shall not touch. These are unclean to you. But in verse 9, these you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whatever in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. And as we read through uh, chapter 11, he continually over and over again says, look, you can eat this, but you can't eat that. And you can eat that, but you can't eat this. But in Genesis chapter 9, he said, all food is given to you. So what's going on here? Now, some, possibly in Jesus' day, and, and some today mistakenly think that God set this up because there was something wrong with the food. But going back to the beginning, we know that was not so. For when God created sea life, and when He created fowls, and when He created animals, He looked upon His creation and He said, it is good. And He gave it to man for food. So why does He give these restrictions then in chapter 11? The reason we find in verse 46 of chapter 11. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. The reason these restrictions were given to the children of Israel was to distinguish something, to set something apart. They said, I want you to be able to distinguish between unclean and clean. 
Now, those words are used metaphorically throughout the Old Testament to refer to sin and or sinful and sinless. So he says, I want you to be able to tell the difference. But it wasn't just for them to tell the difference. It was for them to stand out amongst the world. In fact, if we look back a little bit further, we find that it was nothing to do with hygiene and 100% to do with holiness. Look in verse 45. Actually, let's go back to verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. That idea of consecrate, it means very similar to what we see in 47. Distinguish, set apart. You are to consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. God wanted the Israelites to understand what you do, what you eat, the way that you act, all of this is for a purpose. It wasn't just because God randomly said, well, I'm going to pick a few animals out and you can't have those animals. And it also wasn't due to the fact that the animals had something wrong with them. It was so that there would be a distinguishing, uh, distinguishment made. There would be consecration being done there. They would stand out and be sanctified and be holy against uh, reflecting against the backdrop of the world. And so when we get over to Mark chapter 7, it's easy to understand how the Jews had come to the conclusion that, hey, it's that food that defiles us. But from the beginning, it was not the food. It was the action. It was the, the, the ignoring, the revolting against God's commandment. Do these things. Be holy as I am holy. That caused defilement. And Jesus is teaching that now in uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. We see there him declaring all food as clean as he speaks to the, as he speaks to the multitude. Uh, in that, he, as he hints to this source of true defilement, notice what he does when his disciples, they, they come back to him and, and they say, hey, can you, uh, can you explain that just a little bit more to us? Notice what he says there to them, especially in verse, uh, verse 18 and 19. It says, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all food? We need to understand that statement Jesus is making. He's saying the food is not defiled. The food is purified. There's nothing wrong with the food. Now, sometimes people have read this and thought, well, wait a minute. That's an outright blatant attack on the law of Moses. Well, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 5. If you look over Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18, he said, I did not come to destroy the law. I did not come to defeat the law of Moses. I came to fulfill the law. In fact, heaven and earth may pass away, but not one jot, one tittle of the law will pass away until it is fulfilled. So Jesus made it very clear, I am an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I am bound by the law of Moses, and I'm going to live by the law of Moses perfectly. But what they needed to understand was the law of Moses wasn't saying this food is a defilement. There was something else that was causing the defilement. Paul, likewise, the apostle of Jesus, he taught that food is acceptable. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is giving instruction to Timothy. Uh, on, uh, Timothy is a, a young evangelist. He is going about uh, the, the work that Paul has instructed him to do, going from town to town uh, where these churches have been established, and he's encouraging them, he's building them up, he's teaching them truth. Uh, him, along with Titus, were, were busy 
organizing the church in the way that they should be organized. And notice what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul is telling Timothy, you need to be on guard. You need to be watching for churches that are apostatizing. That's a word that simply means turning away from the truth. There is a truth out here that is found in Jesus Christ, and there are going to be men who are turning the church away. And here's here's a couple ways that you can know that's going on. He begins saying there in verse 2, speaking, actually in verse 1, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He tells them uh, in other passages, not even if if an angel brings this message to you or, or another one of the apostles brings a message and it doesn't conclude, it doesn't harmonize with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the message that he has brought, let him be accursed. He says there's going to be people that are going to do that. They're going to listen to something opposing to Christ. And if you see that going on, that's a good indication that they are turning away from the truth. In verse 2, he says, speaking lies and hypocrisy. You're going to find men who will get up and say that these things ought to be done and these things ought to be done and, and, and yet turn around in their lives and do the very things that they, that they preached and they taught against. Hypocrites. People who, who are, are so worried about somebody else's, somebody else's problem, somebody else's sin, and they ignore the sin in their own lives. He says that's a good indication that that church is turning away from the truth. He says that they will forbid to marry. Now, sometimes this can be confusing because Jesus forbid some people to marry. In the way that he spoke about man and woman marrying, he was forbidding same-sex relationships, men marrying men, women marrying women. This was something that he was forbidding. There were times in a divorce case where he had been forbid those to remarry, barring certain situations. So, so obviously, Christ spoke a great deal about marriage and forbidding people to marry. That's not what Paul is warning Timothy about here. Paul is more likely warning him about things like what we see in 1 Corinthians 7. When you had whole groups of people saying, we want to be more spiritual. To be more spiritual, you have to be single. To be more spiritual, you can't be tied down in a relationship. And so they were leaving their spouses to to be able to be in this single relationship to make them more, more, more able to focus on God. And somehow that made them better than the ones who were married. And Paul talks about that in that passage, saying that's not the case. God created marriage. And so when people start to look to other ways, worldly wisdom, as he describes it there in 1 Corinthians, then they're turning their eyes away from Christ. And they're turning it to themselves. That's the beginning of apostasy. And then the last one he brings up here, the one that we're focusing on, uh, commanding them to abstain from foods. This is the very argument that he gets in with the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, saying there are those who by withholding from themselves, who, who, who set up these very strict guidelines that I will not do this and this and this and this and this, create false humility. 
They say, look at me. Look at how pious I am. Look at how righteous I am because I am keeping, possibly in this context, the the dietary restrictions of the old law. That means that I am more spiritual than you. And he says, if that's where you're looking, if you're looking to the things that you're doing that set you apart, you've taken your eyes off Christ. Christ is the one that sets you apart. And so he says, Timothy, you've got to watch out for these things. Because that sort of attitude, those sort of things going on, that's an indication that the church that you're dealing with or the people that are having those attitudes are turning away from the truth. And then he goes on to say in verses 4 through 5, nothing is to be refused. Every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Nothing is to be refused when it is received with thanks. We recognize what it is that it has come from God, that we have a heart swelling with thanksgiving for the blessings that He has given us, and we set that apart. And He says sanctify. That's that same word that that was used back in uh, Leviticus 11. We talked about consecration. We consecrate that food through our thanksgiving and through our prayer, letting God know of our thanks. We set that food apart. Now, there were exceptions to this, to both of these teachings. In Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, there there was an argument that had arisen as the Gentiles, people outside of the, the house of Israel, they began to be converted to Christianity. And the Jews were saying, these Jews that had come to Christ, they were like, well, how do they become a part of this? How can they be a part of God's people If they don't follow the things of Moses, maybe we should have them be circumcised. Maybe we should do this and we should do that. And so they asked for for some guidance by the people that were able to provide that guidance, the, the inspired apostles. And the guidance that they received was that when they are baptized into Christ, they become a part of the body of Christ. Yet, there are some exceptions to things that were intrinsical to their old way of life. Food offered to idols. Food with blood, like we read about in, uh, in, in Genesis 9, that which still has the life in it. Things that are strangled. They said, you, you need to abstain from those things. Why? As you see in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, there is nothing to an idol. The food that is offered to it is just food. As Jesus said, all food is purified. As uh, Paul said to Timothy, all food is, is, nothing is to be refused when it is received with thanksgiving and sanctified by prayer. Why were they told specifically to withhold from these things, refrain from these things? Because that was their old way of life. And they needed to break from that entirely. They didn't need the, the temptation to go back into idol worship. They didn't need the temptation to join, rejoin the things that they were involved in. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks so much to the Corinthians. who had, They had come to understand what, what he says to Timothy. He said, there's nothing to idols. We know that those idols we used to worship, it was a bunch of rocks and metal, and they had nothing to them. So there's nothing to this meat either. It's just meat. And Paul says, you've got to be careful. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 23, he says, you can eat the meat. You can go in the market and you can eat the meat that's been offered to idol. Don't bring it up. And if someone does, if the, the shop owner says, hey, this was, this was offered up at the temple of Zeus, you better not eat that. Not for your sake, but for his sake or her sake, so that their conscience isn't conflicted, so that you aren't explaining to them that you are okay with idol worship. There were times whenever 
they would say, you have to be careful about the things that you eat. Romans 14 is that idea of a stumbling block. If it makes a weaker brother stumble in sin, then you need to give up your liberty. And so that's to point out over and over again, it's not the food that defiles you. It is not the external thing is what Jesus was trying to show them. Nothing external is defiling you. It's the heart that defiles you. It is what's within. It's internal. That was the problem in the days of the Pharisees. That was the problem in the Corinthian letter, in in Timothy's letter. It's still a problem today. You know, our our class that John has been teaching, I wish I could have sat in here for all of it. Uh, I've missed a great deal of it, but, but what I have heard, it's, it's, it's hitting right on this point. So much of, of the rest of my sermon is probably going to sound like a repeat of class, but that is the problem. It is our hearts. Our hearts are, 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 what are is what is being defiled, and you cannot defile that by something that just goes into your stomach and passes on through the body. That's the point Jesus was trying to make. There is a, a heart, or maybe we would say a mind problem. So oftentimes when we read about the heart in the, in, in the Scripture, we're not talking about you know, our, the, the muscle that keeps our blood pumping. It's our mind. It's our thinking. It's our attitude. It's our, our outlook on life. And, and the proverb writer in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, listen to what he says about the heart. <clears throat> Proverbs 4, verse 23, and this is, especially, I mean, this is true for every age. It's especially true for our youth. He says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. You all listening to that? The children here today, do you hear the words of the proverb writer? Keep your heart with all diligence. There's a reason why your parents worry about the things that you're exposed to. It's about the things that you see and you hear. You know, we sing that song sometimes as kids, be careful little eyes what you see, little mouths what you say, ears and hands and feet, and be careful. When he says be diligent here in Proverbs, he's saying be careful with your heart. Be careful with your mind. Be careful with the thoughts that you allow to come into it, with the things that you allow to impact it, because your life is impacted by your heart. If we look a little bit further, look over to Ecclesiastes, just the next book over. Ecclesiastes is not a pleasant book to read. I'm going to be very, very upfront about that. Without understanding the the purpose behind the book, the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes are so depressing. When we understand that he's pointing everything to Christ, by the end of the book he's saying that the worldly view of our life brings nothing but depression but a spiritual look at our life focused around God and around who He is and His grace and mercy can bring hope. It can make the book hard to read, but in chapter 9, in verse 3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Summarizing, one thing that everyone can be sure of Your heart's going to be full of evil, madness, and then you're going to die. I told you, that's a hard book to read. Ecclesiastes is a hard book to read through because of things like that. And you might be tempted to say, well, you know what? That was probably Solomon, the the preacher. Most likely, most people think that was Solomon. And he was just this wise upon wise, and he's thinking about things in a way I don't think about them. And I'm just not even going to read that book. Well, let's not even take that into consideration. Let's look at Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah, this was an, an emotional guy. This is the, you know, known as the weeping prophet. Listen to how he spoke about the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Notice two different places in Old Testament Scripture. One, possibly by the king who was given the, the, the wisdom that, that God provided him. He was known as one of the wisest kings. The other by a prophet of God who both said the exact same thing. Our hearts are full of gunk. Now I wanted to do a much different PowerPoint. I want to do one with, with the Grinch and socks. I actually had another idea before that. But, but, but I, I wanted to do one with the Grinch because when you sing that song, that's what, the, that's what he's describing. Defilement. He's talking about rotten banana peels and dirty socks and garlic and skunks and all sorts of nasty stuff that fills the Grinch's heart. That's what they're saying. Our hearts are filled with wickedness, with sin. That is the heart problem that man has. And thus, it's not what we put into our bodies. It's what's already in there. It's what's in our heart that is causing us to be defiled. And so then Jesus carries it on just a little bit further. When we get back over to Mark chapter 7, he says, let me tell you about what defiles a man. And we're not going to go into real in-depth detail on all of these things, but there's one that I especially want to focus on. That's the very first one. From within a man, in verse 21, out of the heart of men proceeds evil thoughts. There is a reason Jesus, I believe there's a reason Jesus starts with evil thoughts. It's because what comes out of our heart, our mind, the attitudes, the thoughts that we have, many actions proceed from that. In the Greek, the term that he uses there, it is a very general term. And we talked about in class this morning how, how they had very hyper-specific words, especially for love. They have like six different words for love, four of which are used, uh, three or four are used in the scripture. But the Greek had a many different words that they used for love. And we kind of just lump them all into the word love, but they were very hyper-specific. This word here, this wasn't. This is a very general term, evil thoughts. And it's placed at the front of this list because it's the root of all of these sins that we're about to, to look at. It's the root of all of the following evils that are described. Evil heart, thoughts generate in the heart uh, will unite us with our efforts to produce evil actions in our life. The first one that he describes after evil thoughts is the idea of adulteries. And, and understanding that very clearly, this, this uh, illicit relationships with someone who is married, he says in, verse, in Matthew chapter 5, where does that begin? That doesn't begin alone in somebody's room. It doesn't begin in that relationship. It begins in the heart. It begins with our thinking, with our minds. Where our mind is focused, our body tends to follow. Fornication, take out the, the, the marriage relationship there and just any sort of sexual relationship outside of the bonds of marriage, premarital, homosexual, all of that begins not in an action. It begins in our hearts. Murder, we talked about hate in our class this morning. Murder wells up from hate. Jesus makes that clear as well. John talks about that in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. We look at some of the others. Theft, covetousness, both of those things 
come from having hearts that aren't focused on God. Covetousness, looking at something. Uh, covetousness literally is idolatry. You want something so bad that it becomes your God. You worship it. All you can do is think about it. And that, that spreads to theft. To, to, I want it. If I can't afford it, if I, if I can't have it, I'm going to get it somehow. I'm going to make it mine. All of that starts with the way we think, with the way we focus on things. Wickedness, deceit, lewdness. That idea of lewdness is kind of like the idea of lust, except for unapologetic, unrestrained, not, not private, but just, just public display of I don't care, I'm going to be what I want to be. We see a lot of lewdness in the world today. But again, that starts in the heart. An evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. I don't know how many times uh, you might go to someone and say, look, see how the scripture says that this is the wise thing to do? And sometimes you hear the response, well, it may be wise, but is it really wrong? And Jesus is making it very clear here. You want to know what defiles a man? Foolishness. Not necessarily in a worldly sense, but in a spiritual sense. When we do that, which we know is not wise, that, starts, that, that shows our heart. That shows that God's way, being consecrated, being sanctified and holy, is not first in our lives. It may be ranked up there with some other things, but it's not first. And these sins are prompted by the evil thoughts, and our evil thoughts, our heart, that's truly what defiles us. Now today, many people will still restrict their diets. That's not uncommon. Some do it for health reasons. I'm one of them. Uh, if, if I am trying to, to not eat carbs uh, for, for as long as I can, as long as I can hold out. And so if you see me at a restaurant and I have a breadstick in my hand, you can come up and you can smack me. And when I get over the shock of that, I'm going to thank you. Because I'm trying to restrict that. And the law of Christ gives us the liberty to do that. But it does not give us the liberty to restrict ourselves from outward things so that we can be more spiritual. Over and over again, we're told doing that, trying to prove that we're more spiritual by, by outward elements, has taken our eyes off of Christ. Our spirituality, our, our holiness, our sanctity, it comes from grabbing onto Him as the head, holding to His authority, holding to His ways in every aspect of our life. Whether we like it or not, that is wisdom. Seeing that holding on to Christ produces holiness in our lives. That is what He is calling us to be. And thus we learn then that the true focus should not be removing uh, or, 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 or striving to get the outward appearance into a, a confined shape that says this is a, a Christian. Let's box it up. Let's make it nice and tidy. He says, no, let's fight with the heart. And what I have found is when I am struggling and, and, and trying to restrain my heart and remove sin from, from my thoughts, my outwardly actions tend to follow. If I will get that straight, my thinking placed first on Christ, first on His kingdom, first on His will, I'll begin to follow with anything that might have been wrong in my outward lives. Maybe this morning, if that's what you're hearing, that's what you're thinking about. Maybe this morning you're realizing what the Ecclesiastes writer wrote, what Jeremiah wrote, that my heart is full of sin. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that that is something that every single one of us deals with. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What can I do? Acts chapter 2, that was the question that these men were asking. When they, when they were being told by Peter, there is a Savior and He has come. This Jesus that, that, that came into the world and that did all of these things that, that were attested by God, these miracles, these signs and wonders, He did these things God was showing you. He was the one you were waiting for. And what did you do? You killed Him. They believed that. They were pricked in the heart. They said, what on earth can we do to get this sin out of our lives? When you read their words, it's almost like they were hopeless. Peter says, you're not without hope. He says, repent. Literally turn away from what they were doing. Where had they been walking before? They had been walking in opposition to Christ, pushing Him, shouting for Him to be crucified. Now he says, you've got to turn a complete 180. You're not going to fight against Him anymore. You're going to serve the man who you killed. You're going to set Him up as your Lord and your Master in your life. But he didn't stop there. He said, you have to repent and you have to be baptized. And as you read through in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he says, you are baptized for, so that you can receive forgiveness of your sins, so that your heart, that Ecclesiastes writer and Jeremiah talked about, the heart that is full of wickedness and deceit can be made clean, undefiled. Maybe you'd like to do that this morning. We would like to help with that. Or maybe you've already done that and recognize that while... You have been made clean at one point. You've looked back to that old way of life. You've, you've reached back and started doing some of the things that you had been washed of, some of the sins that you had earlier committed. God still offers forgiveness for that. He says that we are to confess our sins, to, to be open with one another, but especially with Him. And so if there is a sin that you have done here this morning privately, take that up to God. Beg for His forgiveness. Repent from it. Turn away from it and turn back to following Him. If you have not done that yet and would like to begin your walk with Him today, we would love to talk and study with you about that. We can only do that if we know about it. Won't you please let it be known by coming forward as we stand and sing.